0: All right. Let's uh, let's open one prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we just uh, thank you for your kindness to us, and your graciousness, and, and enabling us to come together to worship you, to study your word, and God, just what a what a privilege it is. And something that uh, we so often take for granted, and uh, just at various points in history and in various parts of the world, even today, it's just uh, it's something that uh, that your people don't have that that freedom to easily do that and so god i just just pray that we would truly treasure that truly treasure the fact that we have your word and uh, god just you would bless our time of, of studying it um studying how you have preserved it and, uh, just that we would uh, just rejoice in your providence and uh, taking care of your word and making sure that your church has your words uh, so that we can worship you in and we pray in christ's name amen all right. Well, we are continuing our study of how we got the Bible. We're still, as you can see, on the corruption and restoration section, part five, and it's not going to be the last one either. I think it's just going to be part six. It's as far as we're going to go on that. But obviously, this is a, a very in-depth uh, topic, and and I've been very thankful that many of you have expressed a great deal of interest in what we're talking about, and I do think it's it's very important. Um, but in our outline, again, we're talking about the historical uh, part of how we got the Bible. We talked about the copying, and we talked about the corruption and the restoration. Now, we've largely talked about the restoration. There's, there's a couple more things we need to talk about. Um, but I'm going to, rather than you know, give you a bunch of review this morning, I'm going to assume that either you remember it or you'll be diligent and go back and, and uh, review the, the old Sunday School lessons. But basically, where we left off was that we could we can reconstruct the text, um, and even people who are very critical of the Bible, like Bart Ehrman, will say that um, that we can reconstruct the text really well um, back to a certain point at least. Um, and so we talked about the the manuscripts um, that we have. Um, we we talked about you know the gap of other works of antiquity, uh, but we specifically talked about The new testament what we have is you know it was it was written in the first century um i mean it just depends on we didn't we don't have dates exactly when you know james wrote his letter or when you know um matthew wrote his gospel or so we don't know exactly when you know there's there's all sorts of discussion that happens with the various books but you know probably most of it's in the in the 50s to the 70s um you know, Gospel of John is traditionally viewed as being done around the 90s, so somewhere in that range in the middle to the late 1st century. Um, but then, 2nd century, we have 12 manuscripts. So the very next century we have 12 manuscripts. 3rd um, century, 64 manuscripts. 4th century, 48 manuscripts. Um, so that's 124 manuscripts within the first 300 years. Um, after the completion of the New Testament. Um, Now, as it says here, most of them are fragmentary, especially when you go earlier. I mean, if you just look at, like, what do we have in the second century? Well, we just have little scraps of the Bible in the second century. You can't just look at the second century manuscripts and put the whole Bible together. We have, you know, pieces, and that's very helpful. We can see what the text looked like in the second century, but it is very fragmentary. But as you approach the fourth century, it gets more and more complete, um, and you know by the time you get to the fourth century, we have, you know, the complete New Testament easily, um, and so we can look at it there. And so, but the 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 problem that that pops up, you know, and and basically everybody says, yeah, we can see what the text looked like in the 4th century, no problem. We can look at all these variants, we can figure it out. There's a handful of places that are like, well, maybe it said this, maybe it said that, but we can get it down pretty close. The problem, and this is a place where Bart Ehrman will really harp on things, is what about before these manuscripts? How do we know that there is not that there were not significant changes, either intentional or unintentional, to the text in the copies that were made between the autographs in the first century and the copies we have found from the second through the fourth centuries? Um, the, I mean, the fact is we just don't have that evidence, and so, you know, as as Christians, as people who believe the Bible, who believe that God is superintending history, it's really easy to just look at it and say, well what reason do we have to think that it's been corrupted? Um, but for people like Bart Ehrman, it's like, oh, well, it was probably just really corrupted and you don't have any evidence to the contrary. So, um, I mean, it just kind of just becomes a little, um, it's like, depends on which side you're coming from and which perspective you're gonna take. But we can certainly look at a few things that are gonna help us out here. But just to hopefully make it very clear what, this, what the issue is, is that it's not the variants that we have that are the concern for people like Bartleman. It's the variants that we don't have. It's like what what do those manuscripts look like? If we had first second uh, first century manuscripts and uh, you know a whole lot of second century manuscripts, what would those look like? Um, would they actually look like what we have today? So when we consider that. Um, I mean, if you just if you just put it in a vacuum, you don't really know any details You say, well, we just don't know. We don't have any data. So who knows? It could be anything, right? Well, we do know some things about the nature of the New Testament. So we're going to talk about some of those things. Nature of the New Testament. New Testament was written by multiple authors. These are things that everybody's going to agree with. These are things that you should know. But um, I want to bring them up because they um, they are very relevant to this discussion. Okay. So the New Testament was written by multiple authors. It wasn't that like one guy sat down and wrote out the whole New Testament. Um, and so, you know, it's all just constrained there to just that one guy. It's, you've got a whole bunch of different people that are writing different pieces of the New Testament. And they're doing it from multiple locations. Um, they're, they're, you know, at at Corinth, or at Rome, or um, or at Ephesus, uh, you know, they're just at these different places, and they're writing different pieces of the New Testament. They're directed to multiple audiences at, ge- at different geographical locations. And so when a manuscript is completed, copies, you know, some copies are going to be sent over to this region, some copies are going to be sent over to that region, just depends on who it's going to. Um, And you start to get an idea of like what, you know, the manuscripts of the New Testament look like under these circumstances. Um, And during multiple time frames spread out over decades. You know, this wasn't all done within a week. This is decades of just different authors in different locations Writing pieces of the New Testament and sending them off to all sorts of different geographical areas. Now, if you look at that, you're not going to have like a copy of the New Testament sitting somewhere um, that we can, you know, start. um, I mean, really, like, what this comes down to is like, was somebody fiddling with it? Uh, Was somebody like trying to change it? It's like, how would they ever get a hold of all this? It's just going to be spread out um, over such. A wide area. I mean, it's just it's just impossible to. I'm, I'm probably jumping ahead of myself. So, what will, what would we have to believe in light of the character of the New Testament? What would we have to believe in order to think that um, the the text just got really corrupted in the early period of time? Um, so, I've got two scenarios here. One of them is just the unintentional but significant loss of the original wording. So it's like people were trying to make good copies, but, you know, it just, it just, through their, you know, their mistakes, um, mistakes happen and we just didn't really have a way to get back to what the original was, and it's just been lost. What we would have to have, number one, is that few copies were made. Um, And although Barterman never actually states this, it's kind of, either assumed or implied in a whole lot of his statements where he talks about, um, well, it's like, oh, well, you know, the Gospel of Mark was copied and then, you know, the that author made mistakes, or that, that copyist made mistakes. And then when his copy was copied, well, then that copyist copied all of the first copyist mistakes and made new mistakes of his own. And he just kind of like trails it down here um, as if it's, you know, it's just all this this single line. I don't think he actually believes that, but he presents it that way because it sounds really bad. Um, and it sounds like, well, yeah, we just have just a few copies. Um, and especially, like, of the originals, very few copies were made. Um, that, you know, most of the copying that was done was after it was already corrupted. Again, he has no evidence for this, but that's kind of his theory. Um, But we would have to say that very few copies were made. If we have lots and lots of copies that are made, um, then even with all sorts of unintentional changes, you're going to be able to get back to the original. Um, I mean, that's just the nature of textual criticism. We've talked about that over the past several weeks. Um, The exercise that I've told you guys about that I did uh, one time when I previously uh, taught this material. Um, I, I mean, I kind of, I demonstrated this to my own satisfaction. You know, it was like we made a whole bunch of copies and it was pretty easy to, to get back to the original, even with the small number of copies that, that I had. So um, the other thing we would have to believe is that the New Testament books were not distributed beyond the small geographical area that each was written for. And again, like when you read Bart Ehrman's um, arguments, he doesn't ex- ever explicitly state this, but it's it seems to be implied in a lot of what he says, it's almost like you know, oh well, when you you know when Paul wrote you know the the epistle to the Romans, you know basically it just went to the Church of Rome, and you know they had you know maybe they had a handful of copies that they were making, but you know the rest of the church just didn't care about the the letter that was sent to Rome. Um, so those are those are kind of the things we would have to believe before we could have a situation where. Um, just accidentally, we've lost the text of the New Testament uh, just through copyist errors. Because if we've got lots and lots of copies and they're just widely distributed, because all the Christian church wants to have the Word of God, then you're gonna you're gonna have the material to to find out what the original said, and it's just gonna be just so widely dispersed. There's no way to make it all disappear because um, it's just gonna be all over the place. So let's. Let's see, you know, what, uh, I, I should back up and uh, state the question here. So let's, let's, let's look at these, you know, these ideas here and say um, we would have to believe these things in order for the, the New Testament text to have been uh, lost in any significant degree. Um, is there reason to believe that only a few copies were made, or is there a reason to believe that there was a whole lot of copies made? And also, is there a reason to believe that they were, New Testament books were just stuck in geographic, small geographic spots, or if they were widely distributed? So let's look at some some actual evidence. Now this, I found uh, to be an absolutely fascinating little piece of information. Um, An early fourth century uh, church manuscript inventory now this is um, it's Roman court documents dated A.D. 303. and Apparently the you know the the Roman officials who wrote this they actually dated it. I mean they wouldn't have said 303 A.D. But you know according to you know the reign of you know whatever emperor it was, uh, but they actually dated it so we know when this doc when these documents were written, and they describe the rating of over 320 churches in North Africa by Roman officials. Now this was during the romans persecuting the christian church Um, they just you know they they saw uh christians as being a problem that they needed to get rid of and so they were specifically going around and raiding churches and taking their property and specifically trying to take their manuscripts trying to take their copies of the bible and we actually have um some documents here uh, some court documents from this And it includes an inventory of the items confiscated from a church in Sertna, Numidia, and that's in North Africa. Um, And so we can actually look at what did they find at this particular church. It'd be great if we had inventories of all the churches they raided, but we don't. Um, But we do have this one, so we can we can take a look at what they found. Um, Among other valuables, they seized uh, one manuscript from the church building. It's like, oh well. they just had, just had one copy of the Bible. Uh, maybe it wasn't even the whole Bible. Maybe it was just the Gospels or something like that. just they had one manuscript that they had at the church building. You see my little dot, dot, dot there. Um, but the book covers in the church library were found empty. Now, the Romans aren't idiots. So they went to the homes of seven readers, uh, just a position in the church, people that you know, could read, and they would read out the Bible to the congregation. So they went to the homes of seven readers and they confiscated thirty-seven manuscripts that these guys had hidden. Um, so that means that this particular church had at least thirty-eight manuscripts. And were they thirty-eight complete New Testaments? We don't know. But they had, you know, thirty-eight manuscripts. Um, at least they have they had thirty eight manuscripts that got confiscated by the Romans. Um, and most of these would have been, you know, third century or earlier. Which that would be like great for us if we could, uh, you know, actually get a hold of a bunch of third-century manuscripts. Uh, but I mean, in 303, that's the very beginning of the fourth century. So you know, unless they were just done within the last three years, they'd have been they'd have been third century. Um, now, if this church is taken as average, and my understanding is it wasn't like a particularly big or wealthy church, so if we just assume that this was an average church in North Africa, then and we, you know, we put that out to how many churches they raided and took their stuff, the Roman officials may have confiscated approximately 12,160 manuscripts as they raided all these churches. And that's more than twice the number of manuscripts that survives today. I mean, just think, it's like, I mean, it's like, it kind of like breaks your heart. You know, it's like 12,000 copies of the, you know, at least parts of the New Testament that the Romans just, you know, hunted out and destroyed. Again, we're, you know, we're just kind of speculating here based on, like, is this an average church and did they get the same number from, from every church, but um, it seems like the Christians had lots of manuscripts. Um, they'd made lots and lots of copies. Um, I mean, obviously, this is in a period when it's like not everybody can read, um, so you know, like we live in a day where everybody's got their own personal Bible. Probably, I mean, you I, you may have 38 copies of the Bible. Um, you know, depending on um, you know how, how much you collect Bibles. But uh, I know I have you know several copies of the Bible. So um, you know, but this was a, this was a day when most people didn't have their own personal copy of the Bible. Um, but uh, but we have, you know, a church that had family hey, of copies. That's, I mean, that's pretty good. And so if that's just, if that's just normal, then there was a lot of manuscripts out there. Um, and maybe one of the reasons why we can't find a whole lot before the fourth century is because the Romans were very good at going around and destroying copies of the Bible. It's also noteworthy that this is North Africa. This isn't particularly close to, um, you know, where the Bible was written. This is, this is obviously where the Bible had been distributed out to places where Christianity had gone, um, not ones that, you know, were just in the local area. And then, of course, we also have to ask the question, how many more did the Roman Empire confiscate and destroy that don't have surviving court documents? We just happen to have these court documents um, that give us uh, a little peek into that. So back to the question what we would have to believe, that you know few copies were made. The evidence indicates that lots and lots of copies were made. Um, yeah? So on that same note, I think it's also worth noting, because it's interesting that that's a North Africa mm-hmm. location. The North African councils are one of the first written councils that we have for canonical history, where oh. the church in North Africa, it's a local regional piece where Hippo and the rest of those churches were meeting and they were deciding on what they thought Mm -hmm. was the inspired word, Mm -hmm. and which manuscripts were not inspired. Mm -hmm. Um, So the fact that they would have, in that same century, you know, 70, 80 years later, they're deciding, here's what the Bible is Mm -hmm. for North Africa. Mm -hmm. That also kind of benefits to say, if they were all discussing, is this book one or Mm -hmm. not? Why would they even care? They, They never saw the book of Rome. Right, yeah, exactly. Exactly, so yeah, that's, that's just a I mean, yeah, when they're discussing canon issues, they're obviously they're they're not just like, Oh well, you know, maybe Paul I mean, you know, obviously we don't have anything any evidence that Paul sent a, a letter to a church in North Africa, but you know, we don't have a situation where it's like, Oh, well, we only care about what he sent to us. It's like they they were caring about all the books of the New Testament. So so yeah, that goes to our second point and I mean just looking at what scripture says Second um, Thessalonians 3.1, uh, Paul says, Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among, uh, uh, happened among you. Now, I think specifically Paul here is talking about, when he talks about the word of the Lord, he's talking about the gospel. Uh, he wants the gospel to speed ahead. But I, I think that it has an application for, like, what the Christian idea about the word of God in terms of the written word of God um, actually, should be. It was like the, we want the written word of God spread as well. Uh, we want it to, to speed ahead and be honored. And I think, I mean, I think Paul would definitely agree with that idea. It just goes along with if the, if we want the gospel to be treated that way, we want the written word of God to be treated that way. And um, I think I just clicked in the wrong place. There we go. Sorry. Uh, We also have 2 Peter uh, 3, 15, and 16. This is often quoted when you're talking doctrine or scripture stuff. Um, uh, Peter says, and count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. Uh, There are some things in them that are hard to understand, uh, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. So here, um, Peter is referring to Paul's letters as scripture. He, he views them as um, as the word of God, and there seems to be this understanding that like Paul's letters are being distributed around to the church, um, and you know, and viewed as scripture. And they're not just like it's like, oh, well, you know, we're in Ephesus, so we've got the letter to the Ephesians, and that's all we care about. Um, there really seems to be this idea that Paul's letters are are being uh, distributed and read by everybody, even if it wasn't a letter just for that particular church. So um, that just seems to be the, the way that Christians uh, viewed the Bible. And then, yeah, once we start getting into where we have records of discussions of canon, just like Chase pointed out, it's like, we have people that are talking about like which books belong in the Bible, and they're 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 caring about all the books, um, whether they were the ones that were written in them or not. So when we consider that, like, there's just tons and tons of manuscripts, and they're just all the churches are trying to get copies of all of the books, um, then there there really just isn't room for people to accidentally, you know, make mistakes and we wind up losing uh, the original wording. Um, it's, there's just always so many copies that got spread all over the place. If somebody makes some kind of mistake and it corrupts the text um, at a particular spot, there's just so many other places where there's so many manuscripts where people can look and say, well, no, it's like all these other manuscripts, they don't read that way. And you can always just figure out what are the spots where um, something popped up that isn't correct. Um, I mean, that's, that's kind of the, the principle of textual criticism. I and mean, they just they have so much information. Um, I mean, in the early centuries, they had so much information. Um, and we you know, we know I, I've, I've mentioned this before, we have evidence that they were looking at multiple manuscripts. They were comparing them. They were noting when there was places where they disagreed. So they weren't ignorant of these things. They were comparing them. And there's just no way under that circumstance, if we assume that they're trying to maintain the original wording, there's just no way that they would accidentally lose it under these circumstances. So I hope that's clear. Does anybody have any questions about that? Or our scenario of can you accidentally lose it? Um, Just the things you would have to assume just don't seem to add up to the evidence. So we have another scenario. Um, the intentional and significant replacement of the original wording. Now this is one you often get accusations from all sorts of people, um, you know, claiming that well somebody came along and they wanted to change what the word of God says. They wanted to invent the idea of the deity of Christ or, uh, you know, just whatever, you know, whatever doctrine they wanted to promote. And they, and they went in and they changed the manuscripts. Sometime during, you know, the, the late 1st century, the sometime in the 2nd century, somewhere in there where we don't have a whole lot of manuscript evidence, and, and they just came up with all this stuff. Um, so what would we have to believe uh, for this to be true? What we would have to believe, that either an individual or a group had uh, sufficient resources to track down all the copies of a given book um, more successfully than the Roman Empire. I mean, the Roman Empire, they were going around, they were just trying to just destroy them all. And they didn't do a very good job. I mean, sure, they destroyed lots and lots of manuscripts. But it's like we still have the New Testament. It, it survived. It was not destroyed by the attempts of of destroying it by the Roman Empire. So we would have to have, you know, some some theologian, some teacher, or some, you know, particular group or sect that they wanted to promote their idea, you know, it's like, oh well the Bible doesn't really teach that Jesus is God. And we wanna we wanna promote that idea. So our our group is gonna go out and we're gonna track down all the copies of the Gospel of John and change it so that it teaches the deity of Christ. Um that's a that's a pretty tall order um to just jump all over the known world and try to track down all the copies of the Gospel of John. You'd have to have lots of resources to do that. We would also have to assume uh, that the church as a whole was willing to destroy their pre recension copies of New Testament books, Or it's like everybody's like, oh, okay, yeah, we got this new version of the Gospel of John. Well, let's just let's just you know burn our old copies of John, so there's no evidence of this you know this you know Gospel of John that doesn't teach the deity of Christ, and we're just all going to just shift along to this new teaching. Um, these are the things you would have to, I think. Believe um, in order for this theory to work. Um, I don't know if anybody has any objections or thoughts on that, but I mean, I would say, and then also with that, it's uh, the fact that we have letters from Paul warning churches about people coming in and changing the gospel mm-hmm. and saying, "Don't stray from the gospel mm-hmm. that you were first taught." Uh-huh. There, there's warnings in Scripture yeah. about that. Yeah, yeah, we have we have plenty of evidence in the New Testament itself that there were false teachers running around even before the the completion of the New Testament canon, and there was just all sorts of warnings from the apostles of, you know, no, you you need to maintain the faith, um, defend the faith that was once and for all delivered to the saints. Um, Ben?
1: Well, and along with this, going to the continuity of scripture too, it's not just changing a few key passages. You're talking about, like, in the Old Testament, when you read it, you run the New Testament, really, especially, but just looking at it, it's pointing to that Messiah. And the Jewish people admit that. Mm-hmm. And if you look at what that Messiah actually has to be logically,
0: mm-hmm. the God-man is the only thing that fulfills that. Mm-hmm. And and then you look at the New Testament, and it's, yes, there are key passages that clearly state the he of Christ. Mm-hmm. But it's also implied all over the place. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. You're, I mean, you're absolutely right. It's like when you when you look at um, just the consistency from the Old Testament, and we we look at the New Testament. Um, and I, I don't know how much of what you said got picked up by the recording, so I'll try to. I'm not. I'm not, I'm not trying to to say it. I'm stating it better than you, but but yeah, it's just the the idea that we can look at the New Testament, and if you wanted to like try to change the theology, and if this is a theology that just continues on from the Old Testament, and you want to try to change it to some new theology. You're just going to wind up causing so many contradictions that it's just going to make a mess, um, and that's not what we see. We see a consistency between the Old Testament and the New Testament, and so yeah, it would be it would be very dangerous to try to make that kind of um, you know major changes to the doctrines of the New Testament because you're just going to you're going to cause all sorts of problems. Um, so let's look at a little bit of. Um, information here, and we consider, like, you know, what what resources did people have? Um, well, when we talk about the, the church, especially in the early centuries, you know, few of them were wealthy, few of them were influential, um, they were often persecuted, um, and they quarreled among themselves. Um, you know, there was just never a time, it was like like, you know, we didn't have a, a pope at this period of time, there was... Just, there was just no way that the early Christians, that, that any group within the early Christians or the early Christians as a whole, ever had the resources to try to go track down all the copies of the New Testament and alter them to fit some kind of idea, uh, to, you know, to, to change the theology of them. There's just every evidence that they were far less equipped to do this than the Roman Empire was and the Roman Empire wasn't able to get rid of the New Testament. So there's just no evidence that there is anything um, like that. Now, it's, it's interesting, um, sometimes when this discussion comes up, um, comparisons are made with the Quran. Um, the Quran, you know, it's uh, a, it also was first written before the, the uh, invention of the printing press, so it has a... You know, a, a copying tradition just like the New Testament does. Um, but it's in a, a different situation, um, specifically because for uh, the Muslim world, um, they were in a great deal of political power. They were not a minority religion being persecuted by the government, they were the government, and they were enforcing um, adherence to their views. Um, you know, by the, the power of the sword, basically everywhere they went. And there's even evidence uh, of disputes popping up about variations in the copying of the Quran. And although the statements are fairly vague, it, it, basically a lot of people have concluded that, um, that at a certain point somebody said, well we need to have a consistent Quran and they, you know, by their military might, forced all the Muslim world to give over their copies of the manuscripts they came up with an official version and basically just replaced all the known versions of the Quran with the official version of the Quran and now the question is what did the Quran look like before this new official version came out it's like well we can't really know it could have been very different maybe it was very similar but it could have been very different Um, we can't really know because somebody came along and made a revision and forced it to be accepted by everybody. So there, I mean, that's an example of the type of thing that would have to happen for us to to just be in the dark about what the text looked like beforehand. Um, and you just never had anything remotely like that uh, with the with the New Testament. The the church was just never in a position to do this. At least not. Um, I mean, you know, eventually the Roman Catholic Church became very powerful uh, politically, but. You know, our manuscript evidence clearly goes before that. So there's uh, there's no way that they could have, you know, tampered with it once they came to power. And uh, actually, I mean, you know, they actually, you know, appear to have not tampered with it, even though they had the power to do so. Um, but, uh, but I mean, we can look before they ever had that power, and we can see that the New Testament looks just like it did, you know, Just, just like it did, you know, uh, just like it, the New Testament that we have now, you know, it looked the same back then. So, um, another thing that pops up, um, I'm I'm sure many of you have heard of Marcion. He uh, lived in the second century. Um, He had some, some very unorthodox views. Um, He rejected the Old Testament. He did not think that that was scripture. He uh, produced and edited New Testament in which he <coughs> excluded several books uh, and removed references to the Old Testament or anything else that he disagreed with. Um, you know this Martian often comes up in canon issues because you know he was he was one of the people that kind of prompted the church to start making official announcements about which books go in the Bible. But um, just as far as the text, um, you know, he basically he had his idea about what he thought. Uh, Christianity was supposed to teach and basically had the idea like, well, if I see anything in the New Testament that doesn't agree with that, then that must be some kind of corruption and I need to edit that out. So he had, you know, he was just going to fix the New Testament to make it say what he wanted to say. Um, And what was the result? The church rejected his revision of both the Bible and Christian teaching. Um, So the, the Christian Church did not just sit back and say, "Oh, you've got this new teaching. Yeah, we'll just accept that. We'll just, we'll just get rid of all of our old copies of the New Testament that you know that have these other books and have these, you know, references to the Old Testament. You know, we'll just we'll just go along with your new teaching." Um, no, that that was not the case at all. Um, and as was said, you know, it was like the apostles warned that false teachers were going to come, and you needed to fight against them. Um, and that's exactly what the church did. Um, so all the evidence is that if somebody came along and started trying to teach something different than what the church as a whole had received and what the text spread across the entire Christian world said, that the church was just going to say, no, that's that's not right. We have the Bible. We have the New Testament that we have received, and we're going to stick with what it actually says rather than try to change it. So there's, um, there's really just probably should have put this slide back in. And I didn't. But when we consider um, it's like an individual or a group uh, had sufficient resources to track down all the copies of a given book. It's like no. It just Historically that just was not the case. And the church as a whole was willing to destroy their pre recension copies of the New Testament books. No. That wasn't the case. Uh, Evidence indicates they just didn't have the ability to force a change like this and whenever somebody did pop up and say, hey, we need to change all this stuff, um, they said, no, we're not going to do it. Um, So, once again, I mean, we get back to the the situation where it's like, sure, we don't have just gigantic stack of second century copies of the New Testament and first century copies of the New Testament, Um, but in order for it to have been drastically changed between the, uh, the autographs and what we do have, you know, going up into the 4th century, um, we would have to have some historical situations that just did not exist. Um, so any of these theories that say that, well, we look at this little gap here where we don't know what's going on and we think that's where the changes happen, it just doesn't work. Yes, Chris.
1: I I think the other thing people don't oftentimes think about is the fact that there really was a canon before the church said Mm -hmm. this is the canon. Mm -hmm. You know, they accepted the gospels or Mm -hmm. different books uh, way early to Mm -hmm. say these are the word of God. Mm -hmm. And so, while that wasn't officially written down in a list, or and there were actually lists, Mm -hmm. you know, where they did do that. But before they sort of sit down and wrote it all out, they had accepted, Mm -hmm. you know. Portions of Scripture, so I, I think that sort of plays into all of this
0: mm-hmm. as well. Yeah, it does. Um, we are going to spend some time specifically on the canon issue, um, but it comes up in this discussion because it's, it's definitely relevant. That, like, when the church has received these books in this form, um, you know, then the evidence is they're they're going to maintain that. They're going to keep it. They're not going to. Um, start changing what books they have or changing what the text actually
1: says so, so one question I have is mm-hmm. Bart Erman and all these mm-hmm. folks that have fallen into that camp uh-huh. do they merely state these objections or do they have any proof I mean it sort of sounds like an argument from silence where they throw out the issue they don't have to prove anything on their side but right. they want you to prove everything on your side right
0: yeah I mean they don't really have any like real proof I mean uh, I know Bart Erman will specifically point to the fact that um, that some of our uh, earliest manuscripts that we have, uh, like the you know the like the second uh, century and third century papyri, where we just have these little scraps, they do indicate um, that you know that a lot of the scribes were not professionally trained. You know their handwriting was kind of sloppy. They had a tendency to make mistakes, um, but I mean they're largely just accidental mistakes. Is I mean, Bargerman tries really hard to like prove that they were making intentional changes, but at least in almost, well, yeah, I would say, in almost all of his examples, there's a very reasonable explanation of how it could accidentally have happened. But he's, well, it has theological significance. I mean, basically, the way he presents it is, it seems like he's just saying, well, it has theological significance, which way it reads, therefore, the scribe that was copying this must have Deliberately changed it in order to make this theological significant change.
1: So he's assuming motive.
0: Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's like well this I mean this bears on theology uh, you know this was a disputed uh, you know I mean the deity of Christ that's you know one of the one of the big ones it's like well people disputed the deity of Christ in the early centuries and this textual, textual variant has bearing on the deity of Christ therefore we can assume that this was deliberately changed because of the debates about the deity of Christ, uh, without any like real evidence. I mean, the, that one passage we looked at uh, very early on where um, it's, uh, whether it's the os or, uh, yes. or haas, I guess. Um, and it's like, they look virtually identical when you write them out in Greek. Um, and it's like, he just, he doesn't even like, seem to acknowledge that there might've been just like a, I misread this. It's just like, oh, well, this was clearly changed because people were, you know, they were trying to, def- you know, defend the idea of the deity of Christ, so they changed it to, to read that way. Um, but, yeah, that's, you know, other than simply just pointing to the fact that, you know, they had a tendency to make mistakes because they weren't professionally trained scribes. Um, he doesn't really have any evidence, but he just says, oh, well, they had a, you know, we look at the early ones, they had a tendency to make mistakes, so, um, you know, the, well, the way he presented it is, the earlier we go, the more mistakes they made. And so, you know, they're, they're, who knows what they were doing before uh, we have evidence. But it is a, a, an argument without, uh, uh, an argument from silence. Um, and that actually gets to my next point here, is um, theories without data. Um, unbelieving scholarship has a long history of creating theories about problems with the Bible. That are disproven when more manuscripts are discovered. I mean, Bart Ehrman is kind of you know the the person of our day, but if you go back in previous centuries, um, they were able to make all sorts of claims about people deliberately changing theology a lot later than the second century, because we just didn't have as many manuscripts, and so they were able to say, oh yeah, there was all this change in the you know the first several centuries, you know, and then we start start finding manuscripts. I mean, I know. People made all sorts of uh, statements about the Gospel of John. Um, it's like, oh, well, that obviously it has to be very late, like maybe late second century, um, that you know that it was even written for the very first time, um, because it just has this very high view of the deity of Christ, and um, you know. And then we found uh, P52, and we're going to talk about that a little bit um, in a later session. But uh, P52 is is. Uh, if not our earliest it's at least one of our earliest uh copies of the or you know manuscripts of the new testament it's just a little scrap about the size of a credit card and it's from the gospel of john and it's dated to the first half of the second century somewhere uh, between the year 100 and 150. Um, and so we have a copy of the gospel of john that appears there before the idea of like uh, you know, before the Gospel of John was supposed to have been written by these theories, um, and so over and over again you have that where people will present these theories, and then we find manuscripts and it's like, oh, that doesn't, doesn't really work because our manuscript shows that we had this text even before that. So, um, I mean, that's just kind of the the situation. You know, and Bart Ehrman is living in a time when, like, well, he can point to this period of time because we just don't have the evidence. If you know. I mean, I don't, I don't know how many more manuscripts we're going to find, but if we did happen to find, you know, this big collection of second-century manuscripts that, you know, maybe somebody hid from the Romans and it's just been, you know, buried for, for centuries, um, then, you know, that might just show that Bart Ehrman's ideas are just, you know, all just completely wrong. I mean, I think, I think we can kind of show that they're all wrong anyway, but, um, I mean, you could, you could have more proof, and then and then people would just disregard him, and they would come up with new theories. Uh, but that's just kind of uh, the way it's been working uh, throughout history. Uh, every time we find more manuscripts, we add to the evidence that the text of the Bible was copied faithfully uh, with only minor copyist errors. Um, that's that's just the the trajectory of the copying that we see, and it's just every time we find more manuscripts, it just confirms that idea. Um, no manuscript discoveries have provided any support for wholesale changes to the text of the New Testament. And I know um, in a previous uh, lesson we talked about well, why didn't God preserve the text of the New Testament without variation. And it's like sure, he could have done that. Um, but if he did, um, it would be a lot harder to answer these types of accusations. We would be much more like in the position of the Muslims with the Quran, it's like well, what did the Quran look like before we got this, you know, established official text? Um, if, if we had, you know, if all of our copies of the New Testament just looked identical, it's like, well, you know, maybe this is just a very controlled text. Uh, we just don't know. But the fact is, we have all of these variations in these manuscripts that are just spread across the entire world, um, I mean, you know, the known world of the time. Um, there's just there's just no way for there to be this official text uh, that's controlled by some authority. So a theory with evidence. Uh, excuse me, I'm still fighting my cold a little bit here. Um, when uh, comparing our early manuscripts to each other, uh, where the manuscripts have significant overlap, uh, the nature of the variants indicates that they are not copies of each other. So we have, you know, this handful of early manuscripts, but it doesn't look like, you know, they were direct copies of each other. We can't just, like, do this um, line um, of the manuscripts. So uh, in other words, uh, they represent separate lines of transmission from older manuscripts. So we're looking at our second century manuscripts, our third century manuscripts, our fourth century manuscripts. These came through separate lines. From older manuscripts an evidence of multiple lines of transmission that produce a basically consistent text is a clear indication that they have gone through multiple generations of copying from a single source document without fundamentally changing what the source document says so I mean it very much looks like we have the original New Testament the autographs And they produced a whole bunch of lines of transmission. And so we get all sorts of variation, but it's different variation in the different lines. But we look at all of these different, you know, resultant lines of manuscripts, and they all point to the New Testament text that we have, not some, you know, completely different document. Um, So it very much looks like people were deliberately trying to copy accurately what the Word of God says, it's just best. All all of our evidence uh, points. Now, just in conclusion of this point, and this is going to end our discussion of specifically the New Testament uh, transmission. Uh, next week, Lord willing, we'll we'll talk about uh, the the Old Testament. Uh, it's it'll be a much shorter discussion, so we're not going to have um, you know five lessons on that, but. Um, there was a, a debate that Bart Ehrman participated in uh, against Dan Wallace from Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, Dan Wallace does a lot of work in this area as well. Um, and I mean, it's, it's definitely worth watching if you, if you uh, want well to just, you know, it's on YouTube. Um, but there was one particular thing that was just like a absolutely fascinating um, uh, statement from Bart Ehrman that really shows you just how skeptical he is and how unwilling he is to accept uh, the the, uh, the New Testament as being, uh, you know, accurately preserved for us. And it came from an audience question. I did my very best to get the exact quotes here. Uh, so audience question, uh, between what we have, the strong evidence of what we have that has been presented and the original autographs, what would be in between that that would convince you that it's trustworthy other than the autographs. So basically, the idea is like, we've got this, you know, this information, these manuscripts, and then there's the autographs, and you're saying, you know, all sorts of stuff happened in this gap in between. It's like, what, what will we have to find in that gap before you're persuaded that we actually have the original wording of the New Testament? And his response is absolutely fascinating. He says, well, if we had early copies, if we had copies of Mark, and he, you know, he's kind of thinking about his answer, so there's kind of breaks, but he says, suppose next week there's an archeological find in Egypt, and say it's in Rome, an archeological find in Rome, and we have reason to think that these 10 manuscripts that are discovered were all copied within a week from the original copy of Mark, and they disagree in .001% of their textual variation, then I would say that's good evidence. And that's precisely what we don't have. Now that should look absolutely shocking. Um, and Dan Wallace's microphone was live when uh, Bart Ehrman was answering this question. And as soon as Bart Ehrman finished, you hear quietly, but you can hear it, Dan Wallace say, wow. And that should be our response, it's like, wow. Um, and, and as shocking as that is, I'm, I'm kind of nerdy about things sometimes, and so I was like, what What exactly would that mean? 0.001%? What would that mean? So I, I started trying to crunch some numbers. Now, it's a little hard to necessarily know exactly what he meant by that, so this is his exact quote. They disagree in 0.001% of their textual variation. So I, I started looking at it from, from different methods, and I think probably what he meant was method one here. Um. And so it's basically, um, you know, looking at the number of variations that have been documented for the Gospel of Mark, um, and saying, okay, out of those variants that we know about, um, these ten copies agree in, you know, all but 0.001 percent of them, and that's that's the only place where they disagree. Um, now, there's, as far as I know, there's no document of like how many variants exist in the Gospel of Mark. You know, the number of variants is still something we just don't really know for sure. So I just had to try to estimate the number of variants in the Gospel of Mark, assuming that Mark has the same percentage of variants as the rest of the New Testament, and that Barterman's correct, that we have, that, you know, most textual scholars would say we have 300,000, 400,000 variants in the New Testament. So I just went high number, 400,000 variants. Um, so that's going to put us about 34,000 variants in the Gospel of Mark, if that's correct. Well, what if these 10 copies agreed in every place except for one of these variants? One variant that all 10 manuscripts don't agree on is .003%. That's three times what Bart Ehrman's standard is. So you would have 10 copies of Mark. They're all absolutely identical except for just this one variation just this one variation where there's some disagreement, maybe, you know, maybe five of them read one way, and five of them read the other, or maybe it's two of them read one way, and eight of them read the other, but there's just one variant. Um, that's 0.003%, which is like you know, Bart Ehrman would say, no, that's three times more corruption than I'm willing to accept. Um, I tried another method to try if I could get something that's a little more like where Bart Erman's position is even doable, and so I tried, well, um, at first, I thought, well, let's let's estimate the let's let's look at the number of words in the Greek text of Mark, and uh, and say, okay, what if one word was you know was there was a variation in just one word, and I discovered that that just didn't work at all. It was it was way worse, and so then I went down to the number of characters in the Greek text, and so I estimated the number of, of characters in the Greek text of Mark. Um, I, I mean, I think I'm relatively close, but of course it depends on you know which variants you take. Um, And I was like, okay, so what if one character was different? Between all these 10 manuscripts, you you could only find one character of variation. And with that method, I got down to .0017%. So it's still almost twice uh, what Bart Ehrman's standard is. Um, But so, I mean, the translation of this is that basically what Bart Ehrman is asking for is 10 perfect copies of the Gospel of Mark made within a week of when Mark originally penned the Gospel. And that's the standard he would have to have before he would say, oh, yeah, we can be confident that we have uh, the actual reading of the Gospel of Mark. Um, so I mean, I hope that gives you some, um, some notion of just exactly how extreme uh, Bart Ehrman's standards are. So when he says, it's like, wait, well, we, we can't really have an idea. What you know? What the New Testament actually said? That, you know, the evidence is just against that. Um, this is this is the type of extreme. Uh, I mean, he, basically, he would. For him, you have to have photocopies of the Gospel of Mark of, of what Mark actually penned before he would be willing to accept that we actually knew what the Gospel of Mark says. Uh, but, um, but the church, you know, throughout the ages. Has been studying this issue. They've been dealing with the, the differences in the copies. And, you know, we've, the church has always come to the conclusion that we can be pretty certain about the vast majority of the text. There's a handful of places where we're just, we're not 100% certain. But we you know, we've got options that are very reasonable options. And it's something that we can work with. And God has preserved his word so that um, that we as a church can use his word. Uh, to understand what the gospel is and the way we should
1: live. So, if, just to tell you how ridiculous this is, if you took this standard uh-huh. and applied it to secular literature, uh-huh. Homer's Odyssey or something like that, oh, yeah. secular scholars would be like, are you kidding me? I mean, they would see it as ridiculous. Yeah. So I, I don't mm-hmm. think it's just Christians reacting against this. I think it's just a scholar, anybody with scholarly mentality would uh-huh. think this is oh, crazy. Yeah.
0: Oh yeah, it's I, it, you know, and and Bart and people have people have uh, specifically challenged Bart Ehrman on that point, and he'll kind of equivocate and he'll say, "Oh well, yeah, they you know, scholars of Homer recognize that you can't know what you know what Homer wrote either," but like um, the the fact is is like they they have a, a reasonable idea of what Homer wrote, even if there's lots of places where you're saying, well, we're not, we don't know what he said here, you know, the, and it's, you know, it's, it's way more corrupt than what we have in the New Testament. Right. So you definitely have, you know, places where it's like, well, in this section, we're just really not sure what he said. But like overall, we still know basically what he said um, over the, you know, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, and, you know, Bart Ehrman just is not willing to grant that for the New Testament. Because if somebody says, do we know, we, do we know basically what the New Testament says? He's going to say, well, you just never know, you know. Um, But so he he applies a different standard, Um, even though it's like when when you challenge him on it, he'll say, oh, well, yeah, we understand that we don't know what the, you know, what Homer said either. But but it's like for him, that's not a big deal because, you know, he's still willing to accept that we have a basic idea of what Homer said. But he just doesn't want to grant that for the New Testament because, I mean, you read his book, it's very clear he wants people to not... Trust the Bible. That's his goal: is to try to persuade people to not trust the Bible. He, he won't ever come out and say it quite that clearly, but it's it's clear from oops, sorry, jumping ahead. Um, it's it's clear that uh, um, that that's that's what his goal is. So anyway, so hopefully hopefully that's all very helpful. I know it's just tons of information, um, but, uh, but anyway, Lord willing, we will continue. Uh, next week. So let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Um, Heavenly Father, Lord, we do just thank you for preserving your word, uh, uh, for doing it in a way that, um, just in your wisdom, um, has been very beneficial to the church and that we've been able to just, uh, trace things out and, um, be able to, um, show that the, the critics who, uh, attack, uh, your word, uh, really, um, that they're not motivated by evidence, but that they are motivated simply by a desire to discredit your word. Um, and God, we just we just thank you for just the vast amount of evidence that we have, and uh, Lord, that we can trust your word. And God, I just pray that we would uh, we would treasure it, that we would uh, just not just think about it just from an academic perspective, but God, that we would really just be uh, reading your word, that you would by your Holy Spirit uh, be using it to transform our lives, to conform us to the image of Christ. And uh, God, that we would um, we would live lives uh, that are uh, worthy of the calling of which you have called us. And that in all things, we would honor you. bring pray in Christ's name. Amen.